This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. And I'm his personal chef, Jared Murphy from City Limits. You do a raise, I think. Yeah, definitely. definitely. So, Jared, what's, uh, what's on your radar in terms of housing right now? Well, it's interesting. We've been looking a lot in the past week or so at home ownership. Not really a big part of the city's discussion because in New York City, what distinguishes us among other places in America is that relatively few people own their homes here. But there was a great report out, just a statistical look at home ownership in New York uh, by the Furman Center it came out last week, and people have been reacting to it over time. Just because I think nothing really surprising in the general thrust of the numbers, like it's expensive to own a home here, but you know the racial disparities quite stark. Um, the differences among boroughs too. In the Bronx, where I own a home, only 18% of people own their home, um, and just because of the prices being increasingly out of reach, even for let alone low-income, moderate, middle-income people, even higher-income people, number of people who are mortgage burdened. You know, people talk about home ownership as this great thing, you get equity, you can it's an investment, but obviously, you know, the price for that is is sometimes more than you'd pay in rent and uh, and that, that can have a you know a, a real effect on your ability to navigate the other parts of your life. One thing that they looked at was, you know, let's say you wanted to move outside the city, Westchester, you know, Nassau, Suffolk County, it's really no better for most people in New York until you get out to Suffolk where prices do start to come down. So as far as you the farther you go from New York City, the easier it is to have, you know, kind of your piece of the rock. It's always a fascinating. I, I didn't have a chance to review the Furman Center report, but the, but you hit on some some interesting things. I mean, one is, it's always fascinating to me, and this is coming up a lot with sort of discussion around the police union and expenses, and you know, the argument that the PBA is making is that their members can't afford to live in the city, and that. And this happens with a lot of union membership is people say, you know, you can't raise a family on some of these salaries. And that's why a lot of the cops live outside the city. And I think, you know, that's those are questionable claims. But but, you know, the idea that you talk about affordable home ownership for people, middle income people, and then you're talking about choices about not just where you can buy, but then how that affects your ability to, you know, affects your employment situation, your commute, your quality of life. Oh, absolutely. I mean, in the Bronx, my neighbors, they talk about buying a house. These are blacks and, and Latinos. It's never in the Bronx. You know, a couple next to us is moving to Bridgeport. Their kids are going to stay in school here. Wow. People talk about Rockland County. People talk about the Poconos and maintain their New York City jobs, and in some cases, their New York City schooling for their children. But, you know, the home ownership dream is not in the five boroughs or even anything touching it for them. That's so interesting. I know for middle income and upper middle income people, you know, there's really interesting questions about, well, first of all, you have to be able to save enough, right, to put a down payment down for a, an apartment, let's say, that costs $500,000 or above. And then you talk about questions, though, for people who, with the rent so high, sometimes there's this calculation of, okay, I'm paying $2,000 a month in rent, and the mortgage payment wouldn't actually be that different. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, people's economic, you know, then you're also factoring in other costs with when you, when you own. Right, and, and if you can get a bank to help you buy it, right? And this is where this ties into one of the bigger, less talked about inequality issues of our time, which is the wealth gap. Forget about the income gap, right. the wealth gap. Right. Wealth gap, which prevents home ownership for a lot of people, and then that sort of you know bakes in inequality to the next generation. I own a house because my parents had some exactly. wealth. I wouldn't have been able to buy it otherwise. Now my children are going to be in a much better way, you know, twenty or thirty years from now. Uh, for some people, obviously, that opportunity is not there. Right. Home ownership not a big part of the mayor's uh, affordable housing plan. Obviously, built around rental and mandatory inclusionary housing. And there's been some 
interesting discussions about that over the summer as well. Yeah, there's a lot of dynamics at play now. Now that mandatory inclusionary housing is in place, we're seeing it play out. I mean, we've talked about it here, and there's been lots written about the first test case of a rezoning under MIH was East New York, and that was somewhat contentious, but went through, and that's on its way. And that was a nice sort of first win of sorts for the de Blasio administration. Now we're seeing MIH is at play or debatable on some of these sort of um, special permit requests about different plots of land. So not a neighborhood rezoning, but sort of a, you know, a developer wants to change the use of a plot of land and puts in for a special permit. And if you're creating more density, MIH is going to apply to you. And then there's debates about when that actually does apply. And if you're creating, you know, Gail Brewer, the Manhattan Borough President is now in a bit of a tiff with the de Blasio administration about one particular property. Um, so we're seeing some very interesting examples of where MIH is, is coming into play now. And I think what's interesting about that is that there's a separate conversation going on about density in the city, right? Which is sort of the, that is the magic bullet that MIH uses. We're gonna build a more just, denser city. And I think in general, people have sort of accepted that. Um, but there's been this interesting stream of reporting in the Times, and, and we see in the street too, that the sidewalks are getting too crowded, transit is at a breaking point, parks and pools, you can't even mm -hmm. have enough space to kind of stretch out your arms. And I think the question of whether, you know, f especially for, for neighborhoods that already are quite dense, if more density is going to be an acceptable sort of policy tool, um, uh, you know, feeding back into the discussions about MIH. I think it's really interesting as you look at the diversity of the way that land is used in this city, right? You have obviously the density of a lot of Manhattan and then you go outside and you have all these areas that are single family homes in different residential neighborhoods. And you talk about the neighborhoods that are sort of in between those. Do communities want to add bigger buildings, more people? They uh, you know, there's a lot of debate here about what comes with more density, right? Is there more infrastructure? Is there more transportation planning? Are there more parks? Again, we saw this in the East New York rezoning where, uh, you know, part of the equation was this community development fund and kicking in money towards streetscape, parks. There was already, I think it's separate from that fund, but a, a new school. And we're, we're seeing those conversations play out. Right, and conversations too always about neighborhood character and what that means. Is that a synonym for paralysis or for quality of, of life? And you know, I was at a, a house in the Bronx today, an apartment building that caught fire a couple of days ago on a block where there's been this real tension between developers who want to build up to the existing zoning envelope and homeowners and residents who desperately want the city to lower that uh, before this wave of development sort of sweeps through and, and creates incentives for tends to be driven out and you know this the fire is suspicious right but it kind of fits into an idea that um, the, the development pressures are having this effect on not you know huge neighborhoods but smaller streets little blocks here and there that for a lot of people re represent what life in New York is yeah and and we I think we talked about this before but we did an article you know a, a few months back about the homeowners who stand to gain from rezonings and from added density now again that's if you can keep your home, if you're not sort of pushed out by some predatory, you know, practices or your property taxes start to rise to where you can't afford the, the mortgage and, and the property taxes and things of that nature, 
Um, it's really interesting, and it's also interesting in terms of, um, you know, we're, we're seeing from a city planning standpoint, I think it's we're at a fascinating place, and this is something we're going to look at in going ahead is, is is the city planning is the city planning sort of transportation and other infrastructure in line with some of the density growth and does the does the city really have let's just say transportation does the city really have a coherent and matching transportation plan mm-hmm. the ferry system that's coming online even expansion of city bike and things like that like does it really make sense right does it add up it? right and, and the process, too, I mean, we, you know, we tend to gloss over that because we want to talk about the product, but that's really in a lot of people's minds. We've had reporting this week on, especially in neighborhoods like Jerome Avenue and East Harlem, a lot of focus in coming months on what will the community engagement really look like around these neighborhoods. East New York kind of came quickly. Um, that plan was, was known about for a very long time. The community didn't really have as much of a chance to gear up. Other neighborhoods have, and they've put in place or put together fairly comprehensive visions or in some cases specific plans of what they want to see. Will that really feed into what the city does, especially in the process where a lot of those factors like transit and other infrastructure come up, which is the environmental review process, Mm -hmm. which has always been this puzzle because it's supposed to look at that stuff, but it always seems to gloss over the stuff that is most concerning to neighborhoods. Um, you know, it finds that they are not actually, it's not actually an issue, or it finds there's a simple way to mitigate it. Um, I know in Jerome Avenue, at least, there's a lot of focus on that very arcane, but very important environmental review process, and how much it really is going to assess what the impact of this development will be, and how much it's going to put the onus on the city to deal with it. Hmm. Well, that's going to, yeah, that'll be very interesting to watch. I know we've talked about this as well. East Harlem has this plan in place, you allude to that. Uh, City Council Member Brad Lander has helped lead a Gowanus envisioning project mm-hmm. about a rezoning there. Um, so the communities that have sort of organized ahead of time versus the communities that are less organized, like a Jerome Avenue area, you know, we're going to see the, the differences there. And I think my, my guesstimate is that some of these communities that haven't put forward a plan will feel like they're being imposed upon more mm-hmm. like happened in East New York a bit right versus getting proactively out there and then getting listened to more right or not getting listened to and feeling like you're rejected I mean, either way it's a, the stakes are pretty high and I right. think the this is one of those things that's gonna get a feedback on how people feel about general inclusiveness of the city and how democracy works and you know little things like that yeah the, there was one more thing I wanted to mention about sort of the, the density issue and, and the neighborhoods. And, you know, we did an article on this about how um, the companion to MIH, ZQA, allowed for this new classification of senior care facility. And it's something that city planners say is really important for New York City, which allows older New Yorkers to, you know, the phrases age in place better. And it's especially valuable, too, for couples who, as they get older, need different levels of care and in the same type of facilities you know you sort of advance in the same facility to more and more care Um, and the New York City has none of these continuing care facilities and the first one is being attempted to be built in the Bronx um, but there's a lot of community pushback against it because it involves some more density and some taller buildings in a more residential single-family home neighborhood so that's something you know, to keep on the radar, um, 
senior issues are not normally very exciting and very interesting, but as we talk about hundreds of thousands of people over the age of, you know, 60, 65, 70, um, it's something to watch about how folks are able to live and, and be taken care of. Right. I mean, as I hurl toward that age, it becomes more and more important to me. What else is on your radar screen? So we're also we're looking at um, Section 8 vouchers and, and the Section 8 system that where the city relies on a lot of federal government money to uh, help people have affordable housing. Um, and so we're looking at questions around how much money is available to the city. Are there going to be changes in the formulas um, around the money that's available to the city to use to help subsidize uh, affordable rents? We're going to be looking pretty soon at the community board process and questions about whether they should get more power. But I'll definitely, in between watching the Olympics, I'll definitely be looking for your Section 8 article. I hope you uh, stick the landing. Sounds good.